morning all. The first Noel. Hark, the herald angels sing. Definitely smells like Christmas. And we are indeed on the cusp of Christmas, but we still have some unfinished business here in our Jonah series. Uh, and to me, this seemed like a great time to draw attention to an interesting link. I'd like to suggest that the Christmas story and the story of Jonah share an unfortunate and potentially quite serious condition. Actually, there it is. I've already done it myself. I've referred to both of these biblical incidents as stories, as in the Christmas story, the story of Jonah. Now, my fear is that we do these biblical events a great disservice. It's true, technically, there's nothing wrong with calling them stories. If we mean by that uh, something equivalent to a news story or, say, the story of City Reach Baptist Church. But I fear that when people who aren't Christians hear us referring to Bible stories, it translates to them as something on the level as fairy stories or myths and legends, all of which have their place, of course. We have a fairy garden at home but all of which by no means have the same value or serve the same purpose. And while we're on the subject, what's wrong with an Australianized Christmas? You know, cute cards that show the baby Jesus lying in a, uh, a Northern Territory outback feed trough, surrounded by kangaroos and koalas and galas, uh, not galas, galas, probably galas as well, if, being the Northern Territory. Well, what's wrong with... Uh, Children's storybooks, as Michael shared with us last week, you know, the cartoon character Jonah inside this cavernous whale, uh, complete with a table and a lantern. Well, the problem is that these caricatures blur and move and ultimately remove these stories from the historical record and lump them in with the dream time, the myths, the legends. Stories that everyone loves to hear, but no one actually expects you to take seriously. And here's the crux of my point. The difference is that Christmas and Jonah are meant to be taken seriously. Because the events of Christmas and Jonah have potentially life-changing messages. Because Christmas and Jonah are both true stories. True accounts that have been carefully crafted, deliberately, thoughtfully, divinely, in fact, scripted, enacted, and documented for us in our written record, our word from our creator God to his people, signed, sealed, delivered, and now preserved for well over 2,000 years. Not something we should be taking lightly. So I think our challenge in Jonah chapter 3 this morning, as we continue this four-part Jonah series, is to discover, well, what is it that God wants us to know and believe and do in response to these really incredibly brief and totally unique episodes that take place in the life of one of God's more reluctant prophets, Jonah of Nazareth, actually came just up the road from Nazareth, a few miles away from where Jesus himself grew up. And what I hope this morning is that as we search these scriptures and mine their depths, we'll hear afresh what God is saying to us in this message this morning that I've entitled, Our God 
of the second chance. And you'll see that this theme of the second chance kicks off right here in verse 1 of Jonah chapter 3, where the biblical account declares, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. And I put it to you that these simple words are probably more important and relevant than anything that's come previously in the first two chapters of this classic book. Of course, I realise the, uh, the evasive runaway tactics and antics on the ship of Jonah and his rescue ride of a lifetime in the belly of the great fish are much more exciting and memorable. And that's exactly their purpose, to get our attention. But let's face it, the historical record strongly suggests that this type of treatment is not going to happen to any of us. God includes the miraculous in his book of books only to demonstrate what he can do for us, not at all to show us what he's likely to do for us. And nowhere is that more so than in this ride in the great fish. So yes, I'm putting it to you right up front. The main point of the book of Jonah is not the part that everyone remembers, the miraculous survival of Jonah in the great fish. That's only the hook, no pun intended, to help us remember to take to heart the whole of Jonah's story. Because this account does highlight some foundational and potentially life-changing realities that are accessible and relevant to us today as God's people. So Jonah chapter 3 and verse 1. I think we should first notice and thank God, our God of the second chance, for his sovereignty, for his mercy, as he first perseveres with the reluctant prophet. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Following hot on the heels of Jonah chapter 2, Jonah's eloquent, heartfelt prayer of desperation in chapter 2 communicates clearly that Jonah knew his time was up. He knew he deserved absolutely nothing from God. He would have given anything for a way out of his predicament and a second chance at life. But perseverance is not something you can buy. Or is it? Before I was married, I had a horse. Toby, we'll call him, because that was his name. And to keep him fit, every morning before work, I would ride him around the streets of uh, Upper McGill there. You might recognise the property in the background. It's covered in houses now, but back in those days, you could gallop a horse in there and uh, not meet anyone. But the problem with Toby was he was what horse people call a nappy horse. And a nappy horse is one that is reluctant to go where you want it to go. And every morning as we'd go down the driveway, he would rear and turn and carry on because he didn't want to go in the direction I wanted. We might call Jonah a nappy prophet. Not because he was sleeping in the ship, that's just English for you. So I had this problem of, of Toby nappy. So one day I was in the saddlery shop and I explained the problem to the lady serving me behind the counter, a very British lady, and uh, I thought she might know what the cure was for this. So I, I told her the problem and she had no hesitation. She said, you need perseverance. And I thought, oh great. Um, and I was just about to ask her like, does that come in an ointment or a, a tin or a packet? Like, what do you do with this perseverance stuff? But fortunately just in time I realised you don't buy perseverance, you do it. You 
persevere. Because perseverance is the only permanent remedy for a reluctant horse. And fortunately, God knows that perseverance is also the only, reluctant, uh, only permanent remedy for a reluctant prophet, or indeed any of God's reluctant children. And maybe that's you here today. Am I speaking to any of God's reluctant children this morning? Stowaways, stayaways, anything but God's way, runaways. We can't buy or earn God's favour or his perseverance. We can only marvel at his willingness to stick to his projects. And he does that sometimes in weird and wonderful roundabout ways as a practical expression of his loving commitment to sovereignty, to mercy. It's his character. He can't do anything else. And fortunately, we can be on the receiving end of that. And so to Jonah, the word of the Lord came the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, verse 2, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So far, so good. The prophet Jonah is back on track. God's message of impending judgment on the Ninevites is being delivered as planned. Now, we don't get a lot of detail about Jonah's methodology here. How did he do it? The biblical writer, probably Jonah himself, most likely, doesn't go into much detail other than to stress that Nineveh was a, a big city, a, a great city, in fact, an exceedingly great city. A three-day journey to either walk around it or to walk through it. And Jonah's message was clear and simple. In 40 days' time, judgment was coming and the city would be destroyed. Now, we don't know whether uh, Jonah was a colourful character. Actually, maybe literally, as some have speculated, maybe he was a, a ghostly white colour bleached by the gastric juices of being inside the belly of the great fish. It's possible. Imagine this albino prophet you know, lurking through the streets of Nineveh. Guess he'd get your attention. Maybe he stank. I'm pretty sure he probably did stink, actually. That would get your attention. Maybe he sang. Maybe he was a Pastor Vincent prophet. Or maybe he got a doomsday sandwich board. Or a, a, a hairy camel skin coat. Or, or a coat of many colours. Maybe the sailing ships from Tarshish to Nineveh had passed and, and word had gotten back already from the sailors about the miraculous calming of the storm by Jonah's God. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us Jonah's method, just his message. Preach to it the message that I tell you, God says in verse 2. Preach nothing less, nothing more. Preach as loud and clear and as in their faces as you can make it. That would be my unauthorised and amplified paraphrase of God's commission for his prophet of doom. Most mornings I end up walking down Rundle Mall to, to get to work nowadays. And occasionally I'll hear a woman yelling in the distance. 
It gets louder and louder as she approaches and our paths eventually cross. Maybe you've seen her. I think nowadays she's condensed her message to one unmistakable word. Repent! Repent! I know she's still there because someone at work yesterday said, oh, have you seen the ladies back in the mall? And they didn't know much else, but they got her message. Repent! Repent! I've never seen her stop. I've never seen her talk to anyone. She doesn't threaten. She doesn't prophesy judgment. She just powers on down the mall, delivering, delivering her message for Adelaide. Repent. She's hard to ignore, and her message sticks. It does make you think. Maybe some of you remember the Sydney man, Arthur Stace. He was a converted alcoholic who, in the 1930s, as a teenager, heard this fired-up evangelist tell his congregation that he wished he could shout eternity through the streets of Sydney. And so, over a 40-year period, Arthur chalked, in perfect handwriting, the word eternity on the footpaths and doorsteps in and around Sydney. More than half a million messages that our God of the second chance could use to direct people's attention to a proper perspective, not just on why we're here, but how long we're going to be around for. And 30 years after Arthur Stace died, his simple message was still doing its work. In the year 2000, the New Year's Day fireworks on Sydney Harbour Bridge lit up with a single word inspired by a sovereign and merciful God, eternity. As we might recall from our recent Ecclesiastes series, wise King Solomon wrote of God, he has made everything beautiful in its time, also he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find it out, the work that God does from beginning to end. My wife came back from the gym yesterday and, and she told me about a lady who was going on eternity leave. And I thought, oh, wow, that's a, a new way of putting it. But Jonah didn't need fireworks, but his message certainly lit a fuse in Nineveh. And verse 5 tells us, so the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. God's perseverance paid off. His sovereignty, his mercy prevailed. Jonah versus Nineveh, no less than David versus Goliath, was an exhibition match orchestrated by God for his purposes. And in a double display of his persevering mercy, God gave Jonah a second chance, and as Jonah obeyed, God could extend his mercy and give a second chance to his people in the great and formerly greatly wicked city of Nineveh. So first, God perseveres with his reluctant prophet. Secondly, in the remaining verses, we see how God forbears with the repentant people. He spares them the judgment he threatened and which they no doubt deserved. As we move from the great storm and the great fish through the great city, the remaining verses of Jonah 3 have a subheading in my other Bible of the great fast. 
So from verses six through nine, we find the details of this impressive, all-encompassing response. Verse six of chapter three. Then word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God, Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? This very practical response of the king and his people reminded me of the scenario Jesus referred to in Luke chapter 14, verses 31 and 32. Or what king... Jesus says, going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. And that's exactly what we've witnessed right there in Nineveh. A citywide day of reckoning a citywide revolution and a citywide surrender as one sovereign, the king of Nineveh, concedes to the absolute sovereign, the king of the universe. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? The king of Nineveh wisely takes stock. He sits down and considers whether he is able in his city filled with violent, wicked, evil people to meet the God of Jonah, who's declared his intention to come against him and overthrow and destroy the king, his people, and their wicked city. They probably knew the God of Israel by reputation. He is willing, he is able to carry out his threats of judgment, but always, of course, as a righteous and merciful judge. Maybe they remembered the worldwide flood, how God had judged the world, but gave Noah a second chance as he obeyed, built the ark, saved himself and his family. Maybe they'd heard about how God judged Solomon and Gomorrah, but gave a second chance to Abraham's nephew, Lot. Or maybe they'd heard how the Egyptian army was judged and drowned in the Red Sea whilst the people of Israel escaped slavery and, and genocide and survived to become a significant nation that themselves have witnessed firsthand the wrath of a jealous and judging sovereign. Because we can look back from our vantage point today at God's dealings even with his chosen people, Israel, and cringe. Two magnificent temples destroyed. Solomon's by the Babylonians, Herod's by the Romans, 70 AD, and even the holy city of Jerusalem itself destroyed by the Romans, ploughed flat in 135 AD and kept as a wasteland until 1948. Recently, until then after two world wars, Israel could finally reclaim and rebuild her beloved capital city. What I'm saying is that we need to take serious note that the God of history 
is in this for the long game. Actually, better still, take serious note that when it comes to dealing with the sovereign God of the universe, it's not a game at all. The point here is that the Ninevites didn't argue the point of their guilt. They didn't argue the willingness or the ability of God to judge them and destroy them. And they didn't just pay lip service to God's threat, they repented. They turned, as the king had commanded in verse 8, and they proclaimed and advertised with sackcloth on their bodies and ashes on their faces that their new direction could be seen, that God couldn't help but notice that they had changed. And the record shows that God did see. Verse 10. Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. He could have, in all justice, he could have condemned and destroyed the wicked city. But our God of the second chance's sovereignty and mercy are seen in his forbearance as he spares the repentant people. God relented, verse 10 tells us. God relents when his people repent. One good turn deserves another. When sinners repent and turn from sin, God relents and turns from judgment. There's a great Jewish story told about a young man who went to his rabbi to ask, when is the best time to repent? And the rabbi says, you should repent just before you die. And the young man answers and says, that, but no one knows when he's going to die. And the rabbi says, exactly. So you should repent today. The best time to repent is indeed today. So what is Jonah 3 teaching us so far this morning? Yes, God perseveres with his reluctant prophet. He forbears and spares the repentant people. But to do this justice, I think it's important to highlight how thirdly, through this message of the book of Jonah, God foreshadows his ultimate rescue plan. Our God of the second chance stays on message. He sticks to his script, to his scriptures. He stays true to himself and his unchanging character with an unchanging goal and an unchanging method. I suggested to you at the start today that the message of the book of Jonah is all about showcasing God's sovereignty and mercy. To be sure, the message of Jonah isn't about showcasing the obedience of the Ninevites, because unfortunately that was short-lived. Suffice it to say that the, uh, the Bible and history record that the Ninevites' repentance and being spared from what they really deserved turned out to be a relatively short-term blessing. If we were to turn a couple of books ahead to the Old Testament prophet Nahum, he prophesies obediently that Nineveh was to be destroyed. And as it was, 100 years after the events of Jonah, 612 BC, the combined armies of the Babylonians, the Medes and the Persians destroyed them. Just a summary of the verses for you here from the book of Nahum. Chapter 1 and verse 1, the burden against Nineveh, Nahum says. The book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. Verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. And then chapter 3, 
in verse 7, even though Nahum goes into all the gory details. I'll spare you that. Summary, verse 7. It shall come to pass that all who look upon you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is laid waste. Who will bemoan her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? The book of Jonah is not about showcasing the obedience of the Ninevites, nor is it about showcasing the obedience of Jonah. That was not only short-lived, as we're going to see in the next message uh, of our series next week, it was short-lived and it was given reluctantly and grudgingly by a pouting prophet. But the message of Jonah definitely is about God's unchanging desire to show his mercy to repentant people. And we can be comforted that if he can show it to the nasty Ninevites and jaded Jonah, he can show it to anyone. Of course, the other reason I know God has an unchanging goal and an unchanging method is because 700 years after the Ninevites heard the words of God through their reluctant prophet, God sent his very best and finest, his own son, Jesus, also of Nazareth. And Jesus himself deliberately draws attention to Jonah's ministry and used the reality of it to rebuke the local religious leaders of his day who were questioning his credentials and his legitimacy as God's spokesman. Remember Matthew chapter 12 from verse 38? Some of the scribes and Pharisees answered saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. Just as Jonah <coughs> returned from the depths of the belly of the great fish, God the Father restored his crucified son back to life from the depths of the grave. And Jesus' ministry continues on our behalf today. As other scriptures assure us, he now sits at God's right hand and intercedes with God on our behalf when we look to him as our Lord and Saviour. And it's a historical reality that Jesus' greater than Jonah ministry and message was launched and, as the Bible itself says, began to turn the world upside down as the good news of the gospel thread spread through the whole world. And it's same God, same fingerprints of our God of the second chance. There's no mistaking God's MO or modus operandi God's recruiting handiwork when he needs a job done. Remember Saul of Tarsus, the tyrant, the hostile witness. He was stopped in his persecuting tracks, turned 180 degrees into the fearless, good news, gospel preacher, the beloved Apostle Paul. Same God, same methods, same message. And so in the spirit of Jonah, the Apostle Paul preaches, in this case, to the Greeks in the marketplace of Athens in Acts chapter 17 and verse 29. Therefore, since we are offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked. 
that now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Same God, same call to repentance in the shadow of a promise of judgment to come. And that's why I need to finish up today by commending to you God's ultimate rescue plan. Because the Bible still bears witness and speaks to people who need to hear it today that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only unique son so that whoever believes in his death on the cross as their substitute and saviour should not face judgment and perish, but spend eternity with our God of the second chance. And maybe, maybe today I'm speaking to some Ninevites. Maybe you're here today and you can relate all too well to the Ninevites. You know you need to turn. You know the way you're living is wrong. Be encouraged. God is still seeking to showcase his sovereignty and his mercy. And when you respond in faith to his offer of forgiveness through trusting in that blood of Jesus that was freely given on your behalf, God will relent from the disaster that otherwise awaits you as you cross over from death and judgment to eternal life as one of his blood-bought children. Or maybe I'm speaking to a Jonah today. It could be that you're here today as a Jonah. Not exactly full-blown evil, but just reluctant. Running from God's call and God's service. You too can repent, can turn, and allow God to work through you and in you. I couldn't get over, as providentially I guess, I was reading the book of Acts at the same time as I was preparing this message. Repent. Repentance. Time and time again. The message to God's people, the message to those who weren't God's people in the times of the early church were repent. That was the priority. Turn around. Change. Get it right. God has come to give us a second chance. And we should keep short accounts with God. We're literally playing with fire if we persist in putting off our own personal day of reckoning and doing spiritual business with God. Because the day will come when it's too late to make peace with God. When it's too late to serve him as he deserves and desires. So can I encourage you to take our God of the second chance at his word this morning, from his word, and by the grace that he extends to you, even now, that you thank him for the ultimate Christmas gift, the Christ child, Emmanuel, God with us. Turn from the wasted years, the wasted ways. Stop running. Enjoy the lifetime of blessing that he seeks to share with us. Hark, the herald angels sing. Maybe today Christmas and Jonah really can have more in common 
than we ever thought. How did Jesus put it in Luke chapter 15, verse 7? I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. And in case we miss this point, he repeats it in verse 10. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one Ninevite, one Jonah, one preacher, one man, one woman, one child, one sinner who repents. Hark, I wonder whether the herald angels will have somebody new to sing about today. I pray that it'll be so. Let me pray as the band comes and ministers to us. Father God in heaven, we do ask that you will today, here now, give us the strength and the courage to repent, to own up, to fix up, to change up what needs changing. Lord, will you grant us the patience to accept the things around us that we can't change? And God, will you do this day, will you give us the wisdom to know the difference that as we do what we can and allow you to do what only you can, that blessing awaits us. And we commit ourselves and pray to you as always in the name of your Son and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.